Let me ask you this as we open up. Do you know your family history? Do you know your family tree? Some of us do. Maybe some of us don't. Maybe some of us uh, need to go digging in to find out if we can what our family history is, what our family tree is. Why, why does that matter? I, I think it matters for a couple of reasons. And I, I found some quotes this week that, that I, I thought were really helpful. The great African-American poet Maya Angelou says this. She says, I have great respect for the past. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. And in a similar way, James Baldwin, another African-American poet and writer, he says this. He says, go back to where you started. Go as far back as you can. Examine all of it. Travel your road again and tell the truth about it. Sing or shout or testify or keep it to yourself, but know from whence you came. I think what Angelo and Baldwin are getting at is this. Knowing your origins both roots you in a sense of your identity, in other words, where you've come from, and it significantly also informs your worldview and your sense of purpose, or in other words, where you're going, right? Where you've come from and where you're going. As Christians, we have a, a family tree that we can look at. We have a history that we can understand. And our family tree, Christians, traces all the way back to the beginning of time. It traces all the way back to page one here in our Bibles in Genesis. Our ancestors are the people of God dating back to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And our family head is the Lord Jesus Christ, who in concert with the Father and the Spirit created not only us, but created everything that exists Ex nihilo, or out of nothing. He created it all. And that's why it's important for us to read and to study the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning. And so this book, the beginning of all things, provides us with a foundational worldview. And by saying that, I mean this. It's to say that it provides us with a biblical view of reality that enables us to see everything else in light of the whole, all right? It gives us a biblical view of reality that enables us to see everything else in light of the whole. It's been said if we possess the Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. That same person said this. He said, we can't ensure the continuing fruit of our spiritual heritage if we do not give place to its roots. So we need Genesis if, if, if we're going to know about not only where we're, where we're from, but, it, but also if we're going to have a trajectory that's laid out before us that points us to where we're going. So it's important for us and our identity. But more importantly, and I hope you'll get this as we go through the, the whole series, more importantly, it teaches us about the one from whom we came. And it lays the foundation for what he is doing in creation. There's a trajectory that we're on that we need to understand, but we need to understand that it is, it's his trajectory. Genesis is ultimately about God's revelation of himself to the world that he created. So if we want to understand ourselves and our course 
our, our place, I should say, in the course of human history, we have to first understand who God is. Who God is. A.W. Tozer once stated this. He said, this is a very profound quote. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So we get to Genesis, and I like this quote from Paul Tripp. He says, Genesis begins with the story of creation. It's not meant to be a scientific analysis of the creation of the world. It's meant to put God in the center of everything. He's the initiator. He's the controller. He's the designer. Life is about him. So my prayer as we enter into this series in Genesis is that this, this time in the word will encourage us and will satisfy us with a worldview that explains both the world as it ought to be and the world as it actually is. And in that, of course, we'll learn about who we are and we'll learn about our ultimate purpose. But above all, above all, we'll learn about the God who's the maker of all things. And we'll learn about his eternal purposes in Jesus Christ to fully reveal himself to us and to recreate the world as he makes all things new. All right? That's where we're headed. We're going to read all of chapter 1 and the first couple verses of chapter 2. We're going to do that right now together. So I hope you've got your Bible. I am going to read it all the way through. Here we go. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. 
And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse and the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation the word of God. I am sure many of you have read or heard this account a million times. Maybe not. I hope maybe that was the first time, and if so, wonderful, right? But believers who've been in the church a long time, we're pretty familiar with this text, but I wonder how you've heard what it says. I know you've heard it. How have you heard what it says? As modern readers, I think we often assume that the biblical creation account is sort of a an ancient human attempt to explain the origins of the earth, albeit from a very primitive and limited scientific viewpoint, right? We may, we may approach it like, a, like somewhat of a science text, even though it's, it's ancient and primitive. Or 
maybe we focus our attention on the biblical anthropology that we see in verses 26 to 30 and wrestle through the, the issues of Imago Dei. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Or maybe we look at the creation of men and women here and, and, and we, we sort of uh, uh, work through gender issues. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Or at the end of the text, uh, the stewardship issues related to human domain over the earth. What does that mean for us? How do we care well for the environment? There's lots of ways in which we approach this text. There's lots of ways in which we will read this text. And all of those things that I just mentioned, I want to say, are very good and they're very important. And that God has a lot to say, a lot to say about each of those issues. Certainly, this is God's authoritative and sufficient word, and he gives to us invaluable instruction on questions related to science and to anthropology and to environmental stewardship and all of those things. However, I want to say this, and I hope you get this. This account that we just read was not written first and foremost for those purposes. Okay? was not written first and foremost. First and foremost for those purposes. They're there, but I don't think that's the main idea. What we need to do is we need to read this text as its human author, which is Moses, how he would have intended his immediate audience, who were the ancient Israelites, to hear it. Now, in saying that, don't get me wrong, this is inspired by God. This is God's word, but he, he, he gave this word to Moses at a certain time for a certain group of people to hear it in a certain way. And I think that's important for us to, to jump in and sort of hear it like they would. So here's, I think, the main aim of the text. It is to convey a sense of comfort and security in the knowledge of the supremacy and goodness of God. And specifically in a chaotic world. It is to convey, again, the sense of comfort and security in the knowledge of the supremacy and the goodness of God in the midst of a chaotic world. See, when the ancient Israelites first got this text from Moses, they were living in a world that was filled with chaos. They were living lives that were, that were just upended and, and undone in so many ways. There were rival governmental powers. There were rival religious powers that were constantly threatening the security of the Hebrew people. This was given to them, we think, most likely in the Sinai Desert, in the, those 40 years in which they were roaming through the desert under Moses' leadership. And remember what has happened to them in that moment. They had just escaped the oppression and the slavery and the death of Egypt under the brutal rule of Pharaoh. And they're about to head into an unknown land, this promised land of Canaan, that was equally filled with danger and uncertainty and fear for them. So in the midst of this moment of, of, of sort of uh, upheaval in the lives of the Hebrew people, Moses writes this text to them. God gives this to Moses I think, to more fully introduce them to who their God is. Who he is. The only true and living God of the universe who is eternally existent, who is incomparably benevolent, and who is sovereignly in control of everything. So I think this is the main idea of Genesis 1 and the end of the creation count in Genesis 2. It's this, it's with his powerful word, 
The king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. I'm going to say that again. This is, I think, the main idea of the text. With his powerful word, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. See, the God of the Bible is the king of the universe. He's the king of the universe. The first 10 words of scripture say this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and those 10 words are foundational for everything. They reveal to us that before anything was, God is. He alone has existed for all eternity. And the word used here for created in the original Hebrew was a word reserved for something done only by God. And he doesn't create by using and assembling existing materials like you or I might create something. No, nothing else existed until he willed it into existence. And he simply spoke and it came into existence. So if you're the ancient Israelites, how are you hearing this message? Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, the imagery is of a powerful sovereign who utters a decree from the throne, who issues a fiat, and in the very utterance, the thing is done. That's what you're hearing in this text. See, in ancient days, we don't have, we don't have much in the, in, the, in the form of kings nowadays. There's still some, but we don't, we're not that familiar with that, that kind of authority and rule. In ancient days, kings were the law of the land. What a king said, that got done. Genesis portrays God as not just a king, but the king of the universe. That means he owns everything in the universe. His word is powerful. He is the law. When he speaks, it's done. Did you notice that as we read through? Each time something was created and it said, he said this, and then it follows it up and says, it was so. It was so. He speaks and it is done. Everything he wills come to pass. And therefore, listen, therefore, nothing on earth happens apart from the sovereign will of God. Nothing. He's in control of everything. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is random. Nothing is ultimately chaos because the king is sovereign and in control of everything. That's what the people needed to hear. That's what they are hearing. What a comfort to know the nature of the true God in a world that's seemingly filled with chaos. So he reveals his nature to them in that way. But notice he doesn't just create the world in a single word. Right? He didn't just speak once and it all pops together. There's a process to his creativity. And it's in that process, I think, that's meant to convey something not just of his nature, but also of his character. What is God like? Remember, originally the world is without form and void. When he, when he first, it says, creates the heavens and the earth, it is darkness, it is without form, it is without void, it is without life. It's, in fact, chaos. Look again at, at verse 2 of chapter 1, the first half. 
The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. But there's a word of hope immediately in the midst of that chaos. The second half of that verse says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see God's heart of love beginning to be revealed. We see his intention here to bring light and life into the darkness, into the chaos. But how does he do it? He does it by entering into the chaos. You notice that? He he, he begins to hover over the waters. And then his word penetrates the darkness. Verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. What you're seeing there when we read that is not the creation of the earth's sun. In fact, we, we noticed that, I hope, as we read a little further on. That doesn't happen until the fourth day of creation. That's not the light that we see here. No, what we see here is the life-giving light of God himself. He is the source of life. And from this initial word, the darkness is overcome and the earth begins to, sh- to take shape, and it begins to spring forth with the abundance of his beauty and his goodness and life. And so what we read there over the next six days of creation is that the eternal word, the king of the universe, illuminates the darkness. He brings order to the chaos, and he fills up the emptiness, preparing a world that he finally calls very good. And this very good world is the world in which his newly formed creatures could joyfully live in the light of his beauty and love in perfect fellowship and in perfect harmony with himself. That's what Genesis 1 reveals. Now there's a lot that we could say and learn from the creation account in Genesis 1. <laughs> so we could spend months going through all this. But, but again, for, for our purposes here, I'm trying to boil down to like the, the brass tacks and the nuts and bolts of the passage. And I think it's reasonable to say that God divinely inspired Moses to reveal two significant things in this text. One that says something about who he is and a second that begins to reveal something about ourselves and about our ultimate purpose. So remember the initial audience of this message, the ancient Israelites. Again, they were a people who were deeply in need of a word of comfort and encouragement in the midst of all of the danger and all of the chaos that surrounded them. What would it have been like for them? We can read the accounts in, you know, in Exodus. We see them wandering through the desert. We see the, the moaning and the groaning and the longing and all of the angst that they're, that they're feeling there. It would be easy for them to believe that the so-called great gods of the Egyptians, and of course as they enter into the promised land later, the great gods so-called of the Canaanites, and and we could read through the whole Old Testament, eventually the Persians and the Babylonians, all of them had their, their gods, right? And it would be easy for the Israelites to believe that these gods had enabled these people's formidable armies to conquer them to exile them, to enslave them, right? They needed to see something encouraging in the midst of this fear. So beyond revealing to them that the Hebrew God 
is the sovereign king of the universe who's actually in control of all things. He also specifically reveals to them that he's nothing like these so-called gods. He's, in fact, far above any of the so-called gods of their surrounding threatening neighbors. See, unlike the pantheists around them who equated their gods with the forces and the laws of the universe, have you ever noticed that? If you, if you read about ancient pagan gods, it's sort of like the, god of, the sun is the god, the sea is the god, right? They sort of see their gods as, as sort of in the forces and laws of the universe. In Genesis 1, we have a god here who's above creation, who's outside of creation. He's over all of it. And yet he graciously acts within it. So in other words, the so-called gods of their oppressors are infinitely inferior to the one true God. He exists. And because he exists, they do not exist. God's people, therefore, are not at the mercy of fickle pagan gods, but under the loving protection of their sovereign God. Under the loving protection of the creator of heaven and earth. And by the way, I think that would have been clear to them on day four when the sun and the moon are actually created. I think it's interesting here that, that Moses helps them to understand that didn't happen until the fourth day of creation. They're, they're, the, these pagan gods were the sun and the moon. And here, Moses reveals to them that, first of all, God created these things. They weren't, they weren't primary. They weren't preeminent, right? And he doesn't even give them names. He doesn't call them the sun and the moon. He just says the light that rules the day and the light that rules the night. I think there's a, there's a sense in which Moses is, is, is sort of helping them see the inferiority of the creation to the creator. And unlike the pagans' conceptions of their gods who were impersonal and belligerent, the true and the living God of the Bible is fundamentally good. Did you notice that there are seven declarations of God's goodness in Genesis 1? God saw everything that he had created, and he was amazed at the goodness of it all. The goodness of it all. And he thus expressed his love for everything that he'd created. I think in that, the seeds of love are implanted into the world. They're implanted into the world and they're spread throughout the whole spectrum of the universe. God declares his love for his creation. And as we'll see when we get to chapter 2, which we're not going to do today, but we'll get there, the goodness of God overflows to us as he creates a lush garden for us to dwell in with him. He further provides everything that we need for abundant life and happiness. He gives us the riches of his love through the blessings of a created order that is teeming with goodness and life, all of his good gifts. So God is essentially good. That's his nature, that's his character, and we see that here in the creation account. So I think that's, that's, that's the first big thing that Moses is trying to help the people see, that, that the spirit of God in him is, is communicating to them. There's just something about God that you need to understand. And then... We also see something here that speaks to humanity's special place in his creation and something about our created purpose. Beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1, 
we read that God created humanity, male and female, in his own image. Now, there's a lot that can be and a lot that has been said about this incredible doctrine of Imago Dei. But there's two primary things that I hope to point your attention to this morning, because I think, I think these are the two primary things that Moses wanted his people to see. The first is this. It speaks to the particular and glorious relationship that we share with the Father, Son, and Spirit. The particular and glorious relationship that we share with God. In all of creation, we alone bear his image. Nothing else, no one else, but humanity. And because we share in his image, we share in his love on a relational level that is unique in creation. Just as the triune God, and by the way, we, we, we see here the first hints of that plurality in God, his, 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 his plural yet one nature. In the beginning, God, the word used for God there is Elohim. It's a plural word. And you notice there in verse 26, let us make man in our image. We see the first hints in scripture here of the, the triune nature, the plurality of God. Just as this triune God has been fully uh, satisfied in one another in their eternal love for one another, we in God's likeness are invited to share in that as well. To share in that love. Our greatest good and our highest joy is to participate in the love of God, in full relationship with him, and then subsequently in full relationship with one another. You may be familiar with John Piper's uh, very famous phrase. It says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's our created purpose. Our chief end, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. What's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. But there's even more to our purpose. The second thing I want to point you to about us is that as image bearers, we are also God's reflectors in the world. And for the Hebrew people, they would hear that, this idea of being the image of God, and they would recognize that in the ancient world, a king would place images of himself, maybe like little statues in far-off provinces. And the images of the king told everyone in those provinces that this was part of that king's domain. So our creation mandate as the king of the universe's image bearers is similar to that. He tells humanity, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? With my image, with my glory, as a proclamation of my good reign and rule throughout the world. And thus, in that, he gives us this purpose to fill the world with his goodness, with his love. And what a blessing for us to occupy a world that is filled with the glory of God. That's what we were created for. That's our highest joy. Nothing could be better. Nothing could be more satisfying. So we see here something very important about who he is and what he's like. And we see something important about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing, where we're supposed to be headed and then finally, at the end of God's work in creation, it says he rested. That's what we get to at the beginning of chapter 2. He rested, and he ordered the world in a rhythm of time, and he gave to us the seventh day 
as a day of rest. That's chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Why did he do that? Why rest? I love how Nancy Guthrie answers that question. She says, though the creation and the calling of man is the crowning work of creation, it's certainly not the climax of the account of creation. Mankind is not the reason for God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Humans are not the focus of the creation story. The glory of God is at the heart of creation. We were created to glorify the creator and enjoy him forever. And God established this by setting a pattern for humanity to set aside one day for worship. God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested so that those who were made in his image would share in his rest through worship. He rested so that he could turn Adam and Eve's attention from the creation to the creator. In a sense, God was saying to Adam and Eve and all humanities, come and rest in who I am. Come and rest in what I've accomplished. Enjoy with me the goodness of all that I have made. And this was to establish a rhythm of engagement with the world through, the, through work and then thankful enjoyment of the world through worship. That's what Genesis 1 is about. It lays a, a foundation for a biblical worldview. This is who God is. And I'm going to repeat it again. I said this at the beginning. He is the king of the universe who by his powerful word created the earth as his good kingdom. And what we see here in Genesis 1 is the world as it ought to be. As he created it to be. A very good world. A world that serves as a repository and people who serve as a reflection of of his glory and of his love. So everything that we understand about the world and our existence in it, listen, everything we understand about that has to find its moorings in this foundational worldview. Now, how does that point to Jesus? I started by saying we're, we're doing a sermon series called Seeing Jesus in Genesis. How does what we just looked at in Genesis 1 point to him? There's no promise of Christ in this chapter. There's no type of Christ in this passage. So how do we see him here? Well, I want you to know he's all over this passage. But in order to see him here, we have to first acknowledge that the world, as described in Genesis 1, again, one in which the glory of God is on full display and humanity is in joyful fellowship with him, reflecting his glory throughout the planet, that world doesn't sound very much like the world you and I inhabit, does it? It doesn't because it isn't. That's not the world that you and I inhabit. And the reason for that, of course, is by the time we get to Genesis 3, the whole system unravels as sin enters the world. When sin enters the world, it permanently mars the image of God in mankind. It brings chaos 
back into the order of the world. And we're going to see that in more detail next Sunday. So I won't go too far down that road, David. However, let's just say this. If, if the universe of Genesis 1 is the ideal, we, we, we read this and we got to recognize right away, uh, we need rescue and renewal. That's not the world we live in. I think about Romans chapter 8. What does it say there in, in, in chapter 8, verse 22? It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as, son, as sons, as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're in need of redemption and renewal. That's where this text becomes so helpful in pointing us to Jesus. Here's what the whole rest of the Bible, after Genesis 1, points to. Main idea of the Bible, King Jesus, the Word of God, is coming and has come to recreate the earth and establish His good kingdom forever. If we're to understand what Jesus came to redeem us to, we have to understand Genesis 1. Because it's here in Genesis 1 that we see the foundation for Jesus' nature and his character and his redemptive plan's final aim, which is to restore us back to what we read. To restore us back to fellowship with the God who made us. And that's why when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle John opens up his New Testament introduction of Jesus by directly quoting from and placing Jesus in the opening words of Genesis. The opening words of the Old Testament Bible. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see what John is revealing to us about Jesus here? He's saying he is the creator. He is the light that entered into the chaos and brought about life. That was him. That's who he was. And everything that was made in creation was not just made by him, but for him. For Jesus, as one with the Father and the Spirit, is the rightful object of our worship. And once again... In the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament, the Creator enters into the darkness. He enters into the chaos, this time to reestablish His good kingdom by recreating what had been lost to the darkness of sin. John continues to say in John 1, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, 
glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What he's saying here is that in the arrival of Jesus into our world, the eternal word became the incarnate word. And by doing so, he came to bring us hope. Hope that we can be restored in fellowship with God and dwell again in the garden where he dwells. What does Jesus' life demonstrate to us? Read through the gospel accounts. And you'll notice there's, a, there's sort of a reenactment in so many ways of the creation account being demonstrated through his life, pointing to him as the re-creator. He demonstrates his power to recreate humanity in the cosmos by, 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 by getting this creative process up and running again. He promises new life by declaring himself to be the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. He declares his authority over the chaos by the power of his word when he calms the storm, rebuking the wind and the sea with just a whisper. Mark chapter 4. He again fills the emptiness of the world and provides all that we need by turning water into wine, John 2 by feeding 5,000 hungry people with just a few fish and a couple loaves of bread, John 6, by filling the fishermen's nets to overflowing, Luke 5, by telling a woman that he would fill her life with living water, John 4. And just as he breathed life into creation and breathed life into Adam in the beginning, he breathes new life into us by his spirit as he told Nicodemus, in John 3. And he perfectly shows us what it looks like to reflect the image of God as human beings by being, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's what he does by his life. But by his death, he finishes the work of recreation. Listen again to the words of Nancy Guthrie. She says, The light of the world entered not only into the darkness of this rebellious world, but into the pit of darkness itself so that you and I can live in the light. The Prince of Peace entered not only into this corrupt cosmos, but also into the wasteland of death so that you and I can know peace. The treasure of heaven emptied himself of all of the privileges of deity so that he might fill our lives with all the privileges of being God's own children. The Holy One of God took on the likeness of sinful flesh, the one who made us into the same image from one degree of glory to another, transforming us. He was marred by my sin and by your sin that he could make us into that image again. And on the cross, she says, Jesus experienced the infinite restlessness that you and I deserve because of our rebellion towards God so that we can enjoy his all-encompassing rest in relationship with God. That's what his finished work finally accomplished. And he once again invites us into his Sabbath rest. When the work is completed, he invites us into that rest so that we too can rest from our labors 
and worship him as we were created to do. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Genesis 1 is foundational for us having a right worldview. Again, to see reality for what it is so that everything else can be viewed rightly in light of the whole. And if we have a correct worldview, listen, that worldview will invariably lead us to Jesus. Do you see him for who he really is? Do you see him for who he really is? What chaos are you afraid of? What danger overwhelms you and makes you fearful of the so-called gods of this world who threaten powerfully to undo you and destroy you, to upend your life, to make you question the goodness of God? the sovereignty of God, the care of God, what chaos threatens you? Here's the main idea that you and I need to hear, just like the ancient Israelites. With his powerful word, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. And in Jesus... King Jesus, the word of God, he has come to recreate the earth and establish his good kingdom forever. That is a biblical worldview. And that is the hope of the believer in Christ. In the end, but with what Jesus says at the very end, he says, he who was seated at the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they're true. This is reality. This is the right worldview, in other words. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. She will be my daughter. Do you see him for who he really is? Father, would you help us to see the world rightly? Which is to say, Lord, would you help us to see you as the sovereign king of the universe who is good, who is in control, the one who made us in his image, that we might be the, the recipients of your love and goodness, that we might be the reflectors of it, Lord, even in the, this world that we live in that is definitely broken again and there's chaos again and there's danger again. Would you remind us that you sent your son to recreate it? And if we belong to him, we are new 
We're no longer bound to the dangers and the troubles of this world. We're no longer bound to our own sin that has marred the image of God in us. We have been set free and behold, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. So Lord, encourage us as your people as we see Jesus at the center of it all. He is the maker. He's the sustainer. And he's the remaker of this world. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us to enter into the rest that he offers to us. Even now as we sing praise to you, Lord, let this be a mark of our identity in him as we worship him on this day of rest. You are worthy of our worship. We pray that in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.